Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast. Episode 47, Courage, Betrayal, and Stupidity. Last time, the port city of Benghazi, the jewel of Cyrenaica, escaped Sterling's attempts twice. But now, the SAS was being asked to participate in an adventure that, if successful, would keep alive the Allies' chances in North Africa, but also in the Mediterranean and in the Middle East. Yes, times were that dire, but not for any obvious reason. However, as much fun as David and his men were having, the war was not going the Allies' way. Rommel was still a threat, which meant that Egypt was still threatened. And as went Egypt, so too went the entire Middle East. But in front of all that was Malta, the tiny little island just to the south of Sicily, bombed and ravaged though it had been, had kept the Allies in the fight for the Mediterranean by giving them a base almost in the middle of the sea. It also threatened, as long as the British held it, Italy and Rommel's supply line. The Axis knew this as well which is why Malta was the most bombed location of the entire war. And by the middle of 1942, the island, as in its people and the Allied soldiers there, were on the brink of starvation and capitulation. It had to be reinforced. The Allies had tried, but had not been able to send a steady flow for some time. And this little island was coming in between Churchill and Auchinleck. By early 1942, the war in the desert had ebbed and flowed, but now there was stillness and silence. Rommel was on one side with his tens of thousands of men, Auchinleck the same on his side. Yet their numbers were close enough that neither side had a major advantage, namely enough of a disparity that they could attack, endure the losses of their opening move, and still come at their opponent with more men than the other side. This naturally gave the two leaders pause. Yet Churchill saw the same situation in a different light. He believed that, as there seemed to be parity in numbers for both sides, if the Axis could reinforce faster, then it only made sense that the British-led forces should strike now, or very soon. Now, this was in late February of '42. During the previous December, Auchinleck had attacked, after building up his forces for months, pushing Rommel back to the western edge of Cyrenaica. Rommel rested and regrouped, but only waited three weeks before surging back and grabbing more than he had previously held. So, by the last week of February 42, Churchill wrote to his CNC, sensing that the general was going to, again, take months to build up his forces, wait for a numerical advantage, and then strike. But what if that advantage of numbers never came? What if Rommel had a regular supply of men coming in from Italy? Did that mean Auchinleck would never attack again, not having the numbers he felt were needed? So Churchill's message of late February basically said, Okay, I've given you time. What are your plans? Also, it seems that the other side is being reinforced faster than you, so shouldn't you attack, like, now? 
For someone like Winston, this was a tone most passive. Auchinleck's reply was equally non-combative. In essence, he explained the numbers game to the Prime Minister, and then said, in his experience, he could not see himself being ready before June 1st. This must have brought forth Churchillian invectives. It also produced a Churchill invitation for the CNC to come to London and explain his views. But Auchinleck was too clever for this and fobbed off with excuses that he had to keep an eye on Rommel. Churchill shot back by sending General Nye, vice chair of the Imperial General Staff, to Auchinleck. Nye was to be joined by, or rather reinforced with, Sir Stafford Cripps, who was on his way back to Alexandria. Together, they were to convey London's view of the situation. Namely, Auchinleck needed to move now, because not only was it normally viewed as being better to be the attacker than the attacked, but that the offensive might help take the pressure off Malta. And as the Allies moved west, other air bases closer to Malta could be used. The fighters and bombers would then have that much more flying time to shield the shelled island. If Malta had to surrender due to starvation, Rommel would have virtually no trouble receiving reinforcements and supplies. North Africa would eventually be lost, as would Egypt. But when the official visit came to Cairo, Auchinleck was able to employ something his predecessor, Wavell, could not. Charm. By the time the talking was done, Cripps wrote back to the impatient Churchill that everything seemed to be fine here, and the CNC made perfect sense in waiting. If the Prime Minister would be so kind as to write to the commander, Middle East, a letter stating there was no further pressure from London to attack before he thought it was best, then the whole matter would be cleared up. I can't imagine the first words out of Winston's mouth were the same ones that were officially sent out. But they were still stinging. I do not wonder everything was so pleasant, considering you seem to have accepted everything they said, and all we have to accept is the probable loss of Malta and the army standing idle. Events moved apace. The authorities on Malta wrote to London in mid-April, saying, Send us flour and ammunition soon, or we will have to give up, just to survive. This moved Winston to action, but not Auchinleck. So Winston did what he had to do to move his commander. Gaining the support of the Chief of Staff, the War Cabinet, and the Defense Committee, Winston ordered the CNC Middle East to attack. A time limit was given, which coordinated with a relief convoy heading for Malta. Actually, there were two convoys coming from opposite directions. Surely one of them, or a piece of one, would make it. The convoys would be taking advantage of the moonless part of June. If the CNC did not attack by mid-June to help distract the Axis forces in the area, he had to be prepared to give up his command. Auchinleck agreed to attack. To increase his chances of success and that of the convoys, the CNC wanted to know what the SAS were prepared to do. Sterling huddled up with his men and came up with an ambitious plan to hit numerous airfields in North Africa. 
as well as one on Crete. But all this was just words on paper. Rommel acted. On May 26th, Rommel advanced, before Auchinleck's forced start date. But because the British-led forces were about to attack themselves, Rommel's opening move was stymied after five days. Indeed, it seemed that the German general may have spent his accumulated possessions within those first five days. But then, he did what he always did. He regrouped and advanced again. And probably because Auchinleck wasn't expecting it, in just over a month, Axis forces had made it to Alamein, only 60 miles from Alexandria. But that is a story for later. Back in early June, Sterling's plans for his part to help Malta were made. There would be eight separate raids to remove as many planes as possible. Planes the Axis would either use to spot or attempt to sink those supply ships coming from both directions to Malta. The raids would take place on the night of June 13th and hit targets in Benghazi, Derna, Bars, and at the Heraklion airstrip on Crete. And as the Free French Special Forces were now done with their desert training, they would comprise the majority of the assault forces. One team, under Commander Berg, would head for Crete. His second-in-command, Lieutenant Jordan, would take three teams and make for the Derna area. Another lieutenant would take his team to Bars. This would leave another French team to travel with David and Patty and help hit as many places around Benghazi as possible. Though the logistics were complicated, Sterling felt good about every team's chances, except for Lieutenant Jordan's. This was no slight on him, but that area was now crawling with German and counter-SAS teams. Yet, it was the planes at Derna that would potentially do the most damage to the convoy coming from the west to Malta. Its airfields had to be hit and hard. That's when Sterling heard about the SIG, which, like the SAS, didn't really mean anything again being thought up by counterintelligence. The SIG, or Special Interrogation Group, comprised of 12 German Jews from Palestine who offered to act as Africa Corps soldiers to help fight Nazism. This unit was the brainchild of Captain Herbert Buck, MC, after he had been captured behind enemy lines. Being able to speak German fluently, Buck, after he escaped imprisonment, nabbed a German uniform and made his way back to the front, fooling everyone he encountered. It seems Sterling wasn't the only clever British officer thinking outside the traditional lines when it came to warfare. And it would be the SIG posing as Africa Corps troops that would smuggle the French SAS men to the airfields around Derna. But just to give this part of the mission its best chance of success, Lieutenant David Russell, the officer underbuck of the SIG, decided to also use some authentic German soldiers. Intelligence again was contacted and sent to POWs that swore they were anti-Nazi and that they had been drafted into the army against their will. They were screened numerous times, approved, and sent to the SIG. Their cover names were Bruckner 
and Esser. At first, the German Jews kept their distance from these two authentic Africa Corps soldiers, but over the months of training, before Sterling called on them, they warmed to the two men, who seemed eager to help and took on any tasks asked of them. Captain Buck arrived with his men and three German Africa Corps vehicles, but also a captured British truck with the Africa palm tree and swastika painted on the side. It would be these transports that the SIG would drive to Derna, with the French soldiers of the SAS hidden in the back. David arrived back in Siwa in early June, and together they all set out on the 6th. Once out into the desert, the SIG exchanged their British or neutral uniforms for German ones, and with a layer of sand on them and everything they owned, very much looked like many of the Africa Corps soldiers the SAS had come upon or spied on while on their missions. Yet, as much work as had gone into the planning, there was one not-so-minor detail still beyond the reach of them all, and that was this month's password, which would allow them to travel safely through the checkpoints on their way to Derna. But Bruckner, the disaffected, authentic German soldier, now dressed as a non-commissioned officer, rose to the challenge and intimidated an Italian soldier into letting them pass at their first stop. On the morning of June 13th, the day the raids were to commence after the sun went down, the CIG and their German turncoats managed to finagle the code word from another checkpoint. The challenge that was to be given was siesta. The reply was to be El Dorado. Finally, they had what they needed to get as close as they could to the various airfields without raising suspicion. For all they good, it would do them. Not everything was as it appeared. By noon of June 13th, the sabotage party was no more than five miles from Derna, and this current spot would, in fact, serve as their rendezvous point. But as there was still plenty of daylight, Lieutenant Jordan did a quick reconnaissance of two of the closest fields. Well, this reconnaissance was done through a hole in the canvas of the truck he was riding in. But what he saw pleased him. Numerous Stukas and a squadron of Messerschmitt 110s. By the time Jordan got back, the Free French had readied themselves and their weapons. Also, their plans were gone over one last time. Corporal Tourette would take four men and hit the airfields at Martuba. Jordan and Corporal Bormeau, with each a four-man team, would be driven by the disaffected German Bruckner and two German Jews. Jordan's team would be dropped off first and then the other. But together, they would lay waste to as many planes as possible in the Derna area, the very planes they saw that day. But as they headed out around 9 p.m., the truck with the two teams was making slow progress. In an hour's time, they had only gone five miles. If this was kept up, there was a chance their assignments would go uncompleted. There was no way Jordan was going to let Buck or Sterling down. Yet Bruckner, the driver, kept stopping and checking the way ahead, or the tires, or the engine. Jordan was about to pull rank when they finally reached a spot 
about 200 yards from the West Derna airfield and could hear the music from a movie being played for the troops. But again, Bruckner pulled over and complained something was wrong with the engine. The French unable to come out of their hiding place in the back and see for themselves. Then Bruckner complained that he needed a tool they did not have. But surely there had to be one within the German camp. He would go and fetch it to keep the truck running. Before any of the team could call him back, Bruckner had disappeared into the night. Soon after, Jordan could hear boots crunching the sand and gravel. He stuck his head out to see if it was Bruckner. It wasn't, and two pairs of strong arms grabbed him and pulled him clear of the truck. Immediately, several other German soldiers, all with Tommy guns, came up and surrounded the truck. Someone yelled for the Frenchman to come out and surrender. But one of the French parachute elite troops decided to obey only a part of what he was told. Standing up and making as if he was giving up, he then lobbed a grenade at the closest Germans and started firing his gun. The Germans scattered. Jordan dashed away in the confusion and, within seconds, was almost knocked off his feet as the truck exploded. He guessed that one of the German Jews used his grenade to set off their supplies of explosives. Jordan thanked the man and kept running. Even from his growing distance, Jordan could see flares going up over the airfields. Searchlights were coming on, and previously vacated machine gun emplacements were manned, all within minutes of the firefight. Obviously, the Germans knew they were coming. Someone had betrayed them all. After two more hours of walking, Jordan made it back to the rendezvous point. Buck, the author of the SIG, waiting, was shocked and angered by Jordan's report. The facts all pointed to Bruckner. He must have been a German spy. The delays, his ability to get past the first checkpoint without the password... He must have been under orders to deliver his part of the team at a certain time, and did so with his stalling tactics. And if all this was true, the rendezvous point surely could not be safe. They had to leave now. Admitting to themselves that if any of the men from the various teams survived their respective traps, there was nothing Buck or Jordan could do. So, they headed for the further long-range desert group meeting place, about 25 miles away. The men set out and reached it just before dawn. The two officers waited at the Batel El Zaleg for almost a week, yet they were joined by no one. In the coming months, British intelligence was able to put together a picture of what happened to their comrades. Besides Jordan, only one other man survived, Bormeaux, who made his way to another group's rendezvous point. Yet that had been betrayed by Bruckner as well. The Germans were waiting for them, and he was captured. Of these seven Frenchmen at Martuba, they, without food or water, and quite frankly a real chance of winning, fought the numerically superior German foe. Several were wounded, but all were captured which meant out of the entire group, one Frenchman, Jordan, survived. Buck, the creator of the SIG, had his entire team captured and eventually executed.
The only other person to live into 1943 was Bruckner, who was flown to Berlin and awarded the Deutsche Cruiser in gold. For a reference point, this is two grades higher than the Iron Cross first class. While this debacle was going on, the other three teams were making for the airfield around Benghazi. Sterling only had two men with him, and they had spent the day watching the airfield at Benina. They had to duck for cover every time a plane took off near them, which had just been repaired and was now being tested. Nearby were a few hangars, the real targets for David, as he knew this repair facility was the main one of the area. After the sun was well down, Sterling and company crept to the field. As they came on, they spotted two sentries before they spotted them, always crucial in sabotage work, and waited until the men were gone. At the time, there were only two aircraft parked, so Lewis bombs were quickly placed in them. The fuses were set for one hour. Next, they headed for the hangars. Coming upon the closest one, Sterling rolled back the door just enough to slip through. Seekings stayed outside as the watch. Sterling and Cooper quickly put their bombs around the various machines and tool sets. Then it was on to the other hangar. But again, they had to pause as more sentries went past. As they neared the second hangar, they were surprised that the door was already open. So again, the two of them went inside. Turns out there was a group of men in there burning the midnight oil, trying to repair a JU-52. David, who had the ability to walk without sound, got within five feet of the men and planted the last of the bombs for this hangar. Did he have to go to this extreme? Probably not. But Sterling, like Patty, liked the thrill of danger, and they always pushed each other. Who could dare the odds more? But it was the third hangar that was the jackpot, as row upon row of crates containing airplane engines were stacked throughout. It took a solid 20 minutes of work by all three men to place enough bombs to cover everything of value. As they were about to leave, they all suddenly heard footsteps, many footsteps. But knowing it was no good to be found inside a hangar and therefore trapped, they risked running out the door and making for some other crates stacked just outside the doorway. Fortunately, the exchanging of the guard had the enemy occupied, and so the saboteurs were not spotted. After placing a few bombs on the crates they were hiding behind, David and his men followed the relieved 20 guards to their barracks. Knowing the other bombs that had been placed were about to go off, David had his men stand away from the barracks as he strolled up, opened the door, and threw a bomb to the officer near the door. The man actually caught the damn thing, looked down, and said in horror, Nine, nine, to which David replied, Ya, yeah, ya, yeah, shut the door, and ran like hell. Within seconds, the bomb went off, only to be followed by the first of their other bombs, placed early. Every plane, every structure was now on fire. David couldn't wait to tell Patty about his night. As for Patty, he and a few others were making for the Burka Satellite Airfield, 
Yet that commander had gotten the warning for Bruckner, so was on high alert. This commander had his planes spread out and assigned a man to each plane, then assigned a second man to watch the first man throughout the night. But there was more. As Patty and company approached, suddenly the Burka Strip was visited by the RAF. Bombs rained down. The SAS men hit the ground, hoping not to disappear in a flash. The explosions and the resulting fires exposed the SAS men, but fortunately, every would-be sentry had his head down as well. After it was all over, the team crept closer to the nearest plane, only to be spotted by a sentry who had been standing on the other side. A firefight soon broke out. Then other Germans joined in. But in the darkness and the confusion, each German side was soon shooting at each other. Patty decided to leave them to it and crawled away, leaving a bomb near a petrol tank. But in the desert, normally their safe haven, is when Patty's real problems arose. Looking around, Patty and the Germans could see the fires from David's raid near Benghazi, from one of the French party's raid near Burka, from another French party at Bars, and realizing a coordinated attack was against them, called out massive reinforcements. It was units from this detachment that pinned down Patty's party for nearly two hours. They were in the open, just yards from a German jeep, but fortunately no light was shown directly on them. Of his four-man party, Patty lost a man that night, killed during their escape. The survivors met at the base of the escarpment, and Sterling could not help but gloat that he had outdone Patty this time. Patty pretended not to believe David's counting of all that he had laid to waste. So, borrowing a jeep from the LRDG, the two men, their massive egos, along with five others, managed to squeeze in and head back west that very morning. Forgetting, or not caring, that the Germans and Italians were on full alert, just having been raided the night before, the SAS men bluffed their way through a checkpoint, though now the Axis knew they were in the area, reached Benghazi, verified David's successes, shot their way back down the coast road, almost got caught, but somehow managed to dodge a German patrol. Only then, a fuse one of the men was carrying somehow got ignited. He yelled a warning, and all the occupants jumped clear of the vehicle. Within seconds, the jeep was a fraction of its previous size and aflame. Everyone started getting up after checking various body parts were still working. That is, except for Sterling and Patty. They were immovable and weak from laughter. And when they managed to look at each other, laughed all the harder. And why not? They were thinking the same thing. Sterling had promised he had sworn the LRDG would have their jeep back in one piece. <laughs>